Before we begin, if you want to join our growing group of supporters and give $5, 10 or $20 a month to help make the show even better, you can sign up to the Harder Reports Patreon right now and get exclusive access to full unedited interviews with guests. That's the Harder Reports Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the Harder Report. And now, today's episode. Hello and welcome to the Hardy Report. My name's Edward Hardy and for today's interview I'm joined by Luke Harding, a foreign correspondent with the Guardian newspaper who was based in Russia from 2007 until 2011 and the author of the book Shadow State, Murder, Mayhem and Russia's Remaking of the West, a sequel to his previous book, Collusion, both of which are available to purchase now. Luke Harding, thank you for joining me. Thanks Edward, it's great to be with you. For those that might not have had a chance to read your new book or the previous one, could you give us a bit of an overview of what these books have been about and the research that you've been doing here into what Russia's been doing to essentially interfere in Western politics? Yeah, I, I, all of my books are, are, are non-fiction thrillers. I, I've written a few. And um, I mean, just, just to explain, I, I, as you say, I was the Guardian's Russia correspondent for four years and had kind of careened around the world. I, I, I'd previously been in Berlin and in New Delhi and India, and I, I covered all of George Bush's wars in the, in the noughties. I was in Iraq, Afghanistan, and, and did conflict and war and um, a lot of international reporting. And I, I never really envisaged that I, I would spend a decade uh, writing about Russia or writing about books about Russia. But what happened both when I was there reporting out of Moscow and subsequently is that the the, the Russian state um, has just become increasingly aggressive and adventurous so uh, adventurous so we've seen we've seen war we've seen invasions wars in in Georgia which I covered and then in Ukraine in 2014 uh, with the annexation of uh, Crimea uh, and a conflict in the east um, and we we have seen various exotic, murder plots, really gruesome um, dramas. Uh, in London, where I am, <clears throat> featuring the murder of Alexander Litvinenko back in 2006, when he was killed with a radioactive cup of tea. And then two years ago, famously, Sergei Skripal, a, a Russian double agent, um, who, who um, almost died after two assassins smeared nerve agent on his front door handle. And then, of course, we've seen hacking and the the pretty blatant attempt to influence the American election in 2016 and help Donald Trump into the White House. We've seen, as you mentioned there, Russia over the last few years repeatedly show this contempt for international norms, not just the election interference that you mentioned, but the other elements, the murders or attempted murders that have taken place on foreign soil. We're all familiar with the two that you mentioned about Alexander Litvinenko and Sergei and Yulia Skripal. But while there are these what, on the whole, for Russia, are minor diplomatic consequences for such actions, they get diplomats expelled from countries for their actions, the lack of these serious consequences after events has led some to believe that British government and other Western governments have turned this blind eye to Russia's actions because of sort of the ability and control Russia has when it comes to money flowing into these countries and also control of energy supplies and so on. Do you think that's part of the issue here, that these countries haven't taken a strict enough approach to Russia's 
flaunting of international conventions. Well, Edward, I think I think that's that's right. I think that's that's uh, broadly correct, and it, it's a problem. I, I would say that that Russia has become, after two decades of Putin, uh, in essence, a rogue state that that breaks laws, that that lies about its activities, that dissembles both before the international community and its domestic population, and, and is prepared to do stuff, things um, that. Western democracies are, are not willing to to countenance. Um, I mean, it, Russia's like the kind of problem teenager in the class, difficult, um, moody, uh, with, with a permanent sense of victimhood. Uh, and it, it's a strategic dilemma because no one wants World War Three. You don't want to send British or American assassins to, to rub out people in Moscow. Um, and at the same time, you didn't want to take action. And what's happened so far is that whenever whenever there's an outrage like Litvinenko or Skripal, the response generally from, from the West has been conventional. So, so with Skripal, we saw about 150 diplomats kicked out of Western capitals, including London, including, including Washington, all across Europe, um, and plenty of words of indignation offered. But I, I think ultimately that wouldn't have bothered Vladimir Putin um, very much. Um, and, and the problem, as you say, is that he he thinks that Western elites can be bought. He thinks that everybody has their price, that you can corrupt politicians. You could hire former chancellors, Gerhard Schroeder, Silvio Berlusconi, um, and uh, that, that is a kind of amoral world out there. Um, and, and re really, the, the point of vulnerability that Russia has is, is money. The, the people around Putin are su supremely rich. They're, they're multi-billionaires. They control vast industrial assets and natural resources. Uh, and I think if the West is serious about, about dealing with the Russia problem, it needs to take action uh, against the super rich by, by freezing their bank accounts, stopping them from traveling, and so on. And we haven't seen much appetite for that, either from the Trump administration, which has its own problems with Russia, uh, nor the government of Boris Johnson. Vladimir Putin is not a politician by nature. People often see him because of the time that he's been in power in Russia as their leader, as being this political figure. But he's an intelligence operative. He rose through the ranks of the KGB. He used those techniques and the teachings he learned to seize power in Russia. And we've seen even in the last 24 hours of this recording, constitutional changes occur in Russia that will cement his time in office. Do you think that part of the failings of political figures to deal with him and Russia themselves is because they've treated him as a politician and they viewed him as one of their own kind as is, rather than treating him as this sort of intelligence, quite savvy ex-KGB figure? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think there's, there's been a category error, if you like, uh, in the way the West has, has uh, handled Putin and, and also um, a kind of quite a profound failure to understand how he thinks. Um, and you have brilliant, well-meaning politicians like Obama, who, whom, whom I, I greatly admired, who tried to re reason with Putin to treat him as a rational actor to, to see if through discussion, persuasion, it might be possible to, to find a, a mutually agreeable solution to sort of persuade Russia, cajole Russia to behave a bit more reasonably. Um, and really Obama and others sort of failed to understand that, that, that 
Putin's not interested in mutual solutions. He, um, as you say, has a classic KGB view, view of the world, and he sees geopolitics in particular in zero-sum terms. What What is good for Russia is what is bad for, for the West, and in particular for America, the main adversary, Glavny Protivnik in, in KGB parlance. Um, and he would rather have lose-lose than win-win. Than, than um, and, and so... You, you can't really have a reset with, with this uh, particular regime. And I, I think we're actually back to the, the good old days or the bad old days, depending on your perspective, of, of the early Cold War, of, of George Kennan, of, of containment, where essentially you just need to try and contain uh, Russia's uh, aggressive tendencies and, and keep tabs on on its hyper hyperactive spies. Um, and make it clear that there will be a there will be a price a real price for rogue behavior you mentioned about vladimir putin having this sort of old soviet era kgb view of the world and that sort of approach that he takes when it comes to geopolitics unlike in the soviet era though when communist leaders had a, a clear political doctrine that they wanted to advance the current approach by russia as you talk about in shadow state is about causing this chaos in Western democracies, sowing this discord. What is his end game here? Because we see that this isn't exclusively attempts to tear down one political wing or another. In one country where he might bolster right-wing individuals, in another he might bolster left-wing individuals, if that's what creates instability. So what's his ultimate purpose here? What's he trying to achieve? Well, his ultimate—I mean, it's a great question. His ultimate purpose is to is to undermine uh, the enemy uh, and uh, and the West. Um, and and you're right. I mean, the, the sort of modern Russia is ideologically promiscuous in a way that it wasn't in the Cold War. In the Cold War, the KGB supported uh, leftist movements uh, and communist parties in places like France and Italy. They funneled them cash um, and uh, recruited from them and and infiltrated. And, and now there are several vectors. There's the, the still the far left to some degree, but actually Putin's preferred partners these days are, are the sort of radical populist far right. Uh, in Europe, forces which are Eurosceptic and inimical to, to, to the European Union. Um, and he, what he really wants to do is create chaos. As you say, he's kind of low-key. Um, he, he, he just wants to um, uh, make sure that, that, that Western societies are in a state of turmoil. Turmoil. That there's, you know, a sort of an ideal scenario for Putin is 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 a kind of civil war, um, which we don't quite have in America. But 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 it it doesn't look so far fetched to to imagine that that you could reach that point. And and he wants to squash what you might call the 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 moderate center. Uh, and, and polarize. So it's the two extremes that he's pushing, pushing far left, far right. Um, and while while we're preoccupied with our own problems, woes, culture wars, uh, troublesome economics, this allows Russia to do its sovereign thing, both at home and internationally, whether it's in Ukraine or Syria or Latin America or Central Africa, and to become a kind of a global player uh, in a way it was during the good old days of the Soviet Union. That polarization that Russia has attempted to achieve has been most visible with their efforts on social media and how 
they've managed to take advantage of the algorithms that exist in sites like Facebook or Twitter to promote polarizing divisive content. Why has Russia managed to be so successful in this approach to so chaos and division compared to other countries that is it the fact that Russia has just been willing to exploit these opportunities here? Is it that just Russia is far and away ahead when it comes to this sort of approach with digital manipulation that they can do? What's the reason why Russia has been essentially the foremost country taking advantage of this? It's another interesting question, and I think there are there are several answers. Um, I mean, Russia was kind of slow to the game. I mean, I mean, it's America that's the, the, the home of the web and its innovative powerhouse, um, and Russia not so much. But what 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 Putin, who doesn't use the internet by the way, what what he figured out, or is sort of people around him figured out, is is that the porousness of the West, that the nature of our open societies, the fact that anybody can post or blog or have an opinion or, or a comment, you know, I mean, that was great. It was democratic, it was empowering, but it, it also left us strangely vulnerable to um, hostile actors who, who wanted to exploit the open nature of Western society and turn it against ourselves. And, that, and that's what happened. I mean, when I was in Moscow, the, the, the sort of troll factory was just getting going. And, and primarily back then, it was focused on, on, on Russians and Russian language space. Um, and what's happened sort of subsequently is that this famous troll factory in St. Petersburg has got bigger, its budget has grown, uh, and it's employed more and more people to to post stuff on English language forums. And and to begin with, about 2012, 2013, the people who would troll me, were, you, know, they, they, you know, they would claim to be called Eric or whatever, but actually it was Sergei. And, and they, they kind of abused me in rather bad English. But they got better and better at this. And by 2016, when they were impersonating Americans on Facebook and Twitter and and and, and so on, they, they really looked like Americans. They sounded like Americans. Their grammar had sharpened up. Their, their colloquialisms um, were, were better. Um, and I also think that we were caught napping. I mean, Facebook was was oblivious in 2016 to what was happening on its networks, the, the fact that huge numbers of fake Russian accounts were pumping out pro-Trump, pro, pro anti-Clinton stuff. Um, and I mean, just lastly, I would say it's, it's also about language. I mean, the, the sort of clever, clever Russian spies, they all speak English to, to some reasonable degree, especially the ones who've been foreign intelligence trained. And the, the number of MI6 CIA operatives who speak fluent Russian is very small. Uh, and there's a kind of cultural disbalance. Um, w w basically, in America in 2016 was outwitted by, by foreigners. I would say that it, it, it didn't know and it didn't understand. Do you think that part of it is the willingness of people on social media to get drawn into sort of conflict or be attracted to content that is supportive of their ideas and the position that they want to hold rather than the questioning or critiquing that we're now encouraged to do when we engage in social media do you think we all just fell so readily into it because we enjoyed being in those social media bubbles that we built up yeah yeah i agree i i, I mean I, I i totally agree and to some, some extent I'm, I'm also guilty of this the people people i mostly follow on twitter i mean i try and follow a couple of people who annoy me but they're mostly people in the same uh space um and th this uh, on quite a fundamental level, this is quite dangerous because we're now we're now in the sort of 
state where where a lot of people in the US get all of their information from Fox News. They believe Trump is the victim of a deep state plot. Uh, the, the, the idea that Russia meddled in the, in the election, the last election is a hoax, um, and, and so on. And, and um, it's becoming kind of two tribes. And it's, it's, it's not dissimilar in the UK, where you have uh, Remain people and you have people who fanatically kind of believe and leave and, and have, have a totally different view of, of what's going on. And this suits Putin's nihilistic agenda, because one of his projects is um, epistemological, uh, if you like. He, he wants to sort of suggest that the truth is unknowable, that, that we'll never really know who killed Sergei Skripal or tried to, or who, who poisoned Alexander Litvinenko, or who shot down MH17, the, the plane which six years ago today was blown out of the sky over eastern Ukraine by, by a Russian missile. Um, and if you flood the zone, if you confuse people, if, if you say, well, there are lots of narratives, lots of stories out there, you know, your story is no better than my story, then you are in a, just a sort of nihilistic world of, of postmodern chaos where, where everything goes. And I, I think we as, as kind of intelligent people, you, you know, your listeners, journalists, writers, we need to kind of go back to enlightenment values and enlightenment ideas and call me old fashioned, but I, I believe in the truth rather than a truth. I mean, we don't always get there, but that should always be our objective to, to have a kind of a, a, a reasonable, decent understanding of what's going on, because otherwise you, you, you end up in, you lead into error and confusion. Obviously, you're a journalist by trade as well as an author. So the truth is something that's incredibly important to the work that you're putting out there and the research that you're doing. You mentioned that phrase that Putin's trying to make the truth unknowable there. And you reflected on that point when you were discussing the work that you've been doing in an article in The Guardian not long ago. Do you think that due to the behavior of Russia and also the fact that we're now aware of Russia's interference and other actors trying to engage in interference and stir up falsehoods, that we've got to a point where trust has been damaged so much that we are living in this post-truth world, as people like him claim. And if that's the case, how do we pull back from that to a place where truth is paramount? Well, well, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I mean, I, this is a kind of slightly flippant answer, but, but a good first step is to give us your money. Uh, by, by which I mean support proper sources of news. So if in the US, you know, subscribe to New York Times, Washington Post, or, or to your local paper if it's still there. If you're in the UK, you know, donate five quid, ten quid to, to, to the Guardian. Well, we've just been forced because of the coronavirus crisis to make a whole lot of cuts. So, so first of all, I think you need to kind of support proper proper journalism and and, and fact checked uh, uh, reporting. Um, I think we still need to start teaching our kids about this. I mean, Finland, for example, it has classes in civics for 10 and 11 year olds about how you distinguish between a, a genuine news source and something that you've got from WhatsApp, that WhatsApp, WhatsApp group, for example, that may be a bit more dubious. Uh, and, and I also think um, that it, it's, I think the game is up for, for Facebook and platforms like that, where, where that they can, they can just, promulgate published stuff which is blatantly untrue um and and, and and lying i mean i think they've got to do more to to as twitter has been doing recently with donald trump's tweets to to um call out stuff which is deliberately fake 
and and disruptive. Um, so I mean, there are there are steps we can do. I mean, actually, podcasts, intelligent conversations that you know our our, our kind of chat um, is is another good way of doing it. I mean, there are there are things we can fight back with. It's the game is not all lost, and we don't have to totally give up the field to to cynics and to the Putins of this world. One thing that's really brought this issue home for people living in the UK is that at the time of recording this, the UK government just announced that Russia interfered in the 2019 general election and a report is due out shortly from the Intelligence and Security Committee, which is expected to show that Russia interfered in the Brexit referendum and the 2017 general election. If the UK has been the target of multiple Russian interference attempts, like the US was, why do you think the public are, on the whole, kept in the dark from these reports? The US, we saw the UK again. This is becoming clear. Why are politicians so adamant to keep that from us? Surely they should want an open democratic society where we're all aware of what's happening to our politics. Well, you would have thought, um, and... It's interesting because in the US, um, we had Robert Mueller, the special prosecutor, and his, his report last year into, into uh, the Trump campaign and, and Russia. And frankly, I, I thought Mueller was rather disappointing. Um, he, he, he was like a sort of boy scout going into a, a casino or a gambling den where, where people routinely cheat and lie and dissemble. Um, but having said that, it was at least a fair-minded attempt to interrogate what had happened and, and the way in which uh, Russia had had really big time sought to sort of sway and deform American politics to its advantage. Now, in in the UK, we've, we haven't had that. We have, we have the Russia report coming. I, I suspect it will not be super exciting. Uh, uh, I suspect it will acknowledge that there's a problem, but but I, I don't really think it's going to be revelatory. And the reason is that that... Um, successive UK governments, but particularly that of Theresa May when she was Prime Minister and Boris Johnson, have, have refused to um, call out Russian meddling because it's been politically advantageous to them. And I have a whole chapter in my book called Moscow Gold, which lays out the, the multiple contacts in the run-up to the EU referendum in 2016 between Russian spies based at the embassy in London and the, the Leave EU campaign, offers of gold, diamonds, more gold. Um, and the, May and Johnson, when he was Foreign Secretary, they, they really didn't want to investigate this, nor did they want to look at um, claims that Trump had been compromised by, by the Kremlin, um, because they want Brexit to be a great success. Um, and they, they don't want to countenance the idea that Russia, using social media and, and traditional espionage, was, was, was pushing for Brexit, which it was. Now, now we, you know, we don't know whether whether the Russians pushed Brexit over the line. It's possible they didn't. But but what what the UK hasn't done, the British government hasn't done, is do a kind of comprehensive Mueller-style investigation into what happened in 2016. And I think I think that's a, it's hugely problematic. Uh, it, it's deeply disappointing. And yeah, you know, over the next few days, we're going to see more spin really from from Johnson, the Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab, um, uh, over what's been happening. You mentioned that point about politicians not challenging Russian interference or highlighting it because at the time that it occurs, it's politically advantageous to them. 
to bring it back to a point we were discussing early, do you think that's incredibly misguided of them to take that approach? Because it surely fundamentally misunderstands the aim of Putin, as you were laying out, to sow chaos and mistrust. Because while at the time it might be, let's put the Conservatives in power or let's put Donald Trump in power, but eventually, surely it would swing the other way where it would be in his interest to you know, promote their opponents. So if they're not challenging it, do you think that's just a misguided approach? I I, I, I do, and and the current so the current British government is is, is I, I I find a lot of it pretty kind of scary. It seems very centralising. It seems to have a kind of overwhelming uh, cultural ideological project to re rewire the state, make it pro Brexit, to get rid of judges or civil servants or or even Tory politicians who who oppose this in any way i mean the, the party was purged at the end of last year of of pro-european voices um and, and and you're right as i said you know the putin and his regime they kind of don't really care who wins they just want chaos i mean trump was a perfect outcome and he he's of of, of the right the populist right but it could equally be someone of the far left whom whom they, they support, and so it's 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 fantastically short-sighted. I mean, it's it's very easy these days through social media, through through hacking, through um, all, all sorts of means to to meddle in other people's kind of political affairs. Um, and I think we'll see more of this. I mean, I, I think one one avenue that Putin is quite interested in is secessionism. There's quite a lot of evidence that that Putin trolls backed Scottish independence in the last referendum, I am certain that if there is another independence referendum, that, that Russia, again, will weigh in on the side of of, of Scotland. Because what, what it wants is it wants a weakened UK, a broken up UK. Brexit was perfect. Brexit's Russian foreign policy because it weakens the European Union, which is a powerful bloc that Putin hates, um, estranges London from, from Paris and from Berlin, um, and, and reduces the transatlantic alliance. None of this is being acknowledged by the Conservative Party or those who back Brexit politically. You talked earlier about how Ukraine, Georgia have obviously faced direct incursions by Russia and Russian-backed militants attempting to not just sow discord, but literally invade those areas. And Ukraine in particular had Crimea annexed by Russia. Do you believe that, as some have suggested, Vladimir Putin's aim, while also to, to sow this discord that we talked about, is to rebuild the old Soviet Union era, or at the very least, bring Russia back up to the status that it had during the Soviet Union era, even if that's not taking back the lands that it once controlled, pulling those nations back towards Russian Empire, either just politically or literally within Russia's borders. Yeah, uh, yes. I mean, I think uh, broadly speaking, I, I would agree with that. I mean, Putin sees himself on a on a historical mission. It, it, it's it's quite messianic. Uh, there's a kind of element of of um, uh, sort of almost Peter the Great to it, and and he he wants to make Russia a, a powerful force in the world, a superpower again, as it was in Soviet times, um, and, and most importantly, a kind of co-equal to the United States. What he hates is the idea that Russia was not consulted over major international decisions. He, he wants Moscow to be an indispensable player in any settlement, whether it's Iran 
or the, or or Syria or Ukraine or whatever. And also he he adheres to the 19th century doctrine of of great powers. He he thinks that Russia is entitled to influence um, states outside its borders that used to be part of the Soviet Union um, and and really veto their foreign and security policy choices and. This isn't just a, a, a kind of a world view. I mean, he, he's a, I, I watch Russian tanks rolling down the road towards Tbilisi, the Georgian capital, um, in 2008. Uh, I was on the front line in Ukraine in 2014. So he, he's prepared to kind of chew up borders and change reality on the ground to make it happen. And just looking forward, I'm pretty nervous about what, what may happen next, especially if Trump wins again, whether... There might be another adventure in, in Ukraine, perhaps to to get a water supply for Crimea by taking more Ukrainian land, or, or the Baltic states are another point of vulnerability. He he is revisionist. He he doesn't accept what happened uh, in 1991. He's described the demise of the Soviet Union as the greatest geopolitical tragedy of the 20th century, and in some form he he wants not not with the communism, but he wants the Soviet Union back. Vladimir Putin has clearly felt empowered by the lack of pushback he's received, whether that's politically, whether that's economically, whether that's his military actions. Do you see any likelihood of a more robust approach by the West in the near future? I mean, it depends on who wins. Uh, I think if Joe Biden wins, then there'll definitely be a change of tone on Russia. Um, with Boris Johnson, not not so much, because the the... the the corollary of Brexit is that, that with the UK basically cutting its ties with the European Union, it's going to need money, inward investment, cash from other people, other places. Uh, and I would expect some kind of pragmatic reset possibly with Russia and with Turkey and with others because we're going to need the cash. Um, and so it, 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 it's, it's tricky. I mean, it's, it's, it's a very... Um, it's a very uncertain period. Angela Merkel is heading out the door. I mean, she, she's been quite stalwart on Russia, has, has been leading the drive by the European Union to impose sanctions on Moscow after Crimea in 2014. Um, so I don't really expect any kind of major pushback. And, and the problem is that, meanwhile, Putin has cemented his rule. There's been this kind of constitutional referendum in inverted commas. Uh, which means he can stay in power until 2036, until his early 80s. Um, and so so we're going to see more of the same. We're going to see more hacking. We're going to see trolling. I get trolled every day still by a lot of people, I sus or many, many of whom I, I suspect are actually sort of Russian bots. Um, and we're going to see more attempts to kind of play God in other people's elections. So it's – and probably I'll write more books. It, it's It's – the, the weather forecast is stormy, Edward. Let's put it like that. You covered mafia state. There was collusion. There was shadow state that you've written. Are you working on anything at the moment? Are you allowed to tell us if you're working on anything at the moment? Oh, God. I mean, I mean I've, I've written, uh, I think, well, I've written seven books, including an e-book in 10 years. Uh, two, two of them have been made into movies. One, one of them is a, is a play, uh, Very Expensive Poison, about the murder of Alexander Litvinenko, which was on at the Old Vic Theatre last autumn before the virus, if you can remember that far back. Um, and there are sort of further adaptations in, in the pipeline. I think basically I need to kind of lie down for, for a bit now, <laughs> otherwise I may combust. Um, 
and like I said, you know, I didn't write all these books because I'm a sort of literary maniac. I wrote them just because the story keeps keeps rolling. Um, and it, it, I guess it's sort of first draft of history in a way. Um, and I, I try and write stories which are sort of true and exciting. And um, I, I guess if I'm honest, have filmic potential. Um, but no, as of now, I'm not writing another book. This one just came out last week in New York and London. So I, I'm just um, I'm just doing that for now. Where can people find the work that you've done and catch up with the research and the reporting that you're still doing now for The Guardian? Well, so, so HarperCollins um, publishes me in the US. Uh, there's, there's a rather wonderful front cover of the American edition, which has um, the, the Lincoln Memorial, you know, Lincoln, but with Putin's face uh, uh, imposed upon it. Um, in, in London, I'm published by, by, by Faber and Faber. Um, and obviously everything you can... Everything I write, you can read on the Guardian website for free. We're, we're still free, but we're also broke. So, um, you know, if anyone wants to give us a few dollars, that would be great. Luke Harding, thank you for joining me. That, thanks, Edward. Pleasure to chat. That was Luke Harding, a journalist with the Guardian newspaper and the author of the book Shadow State, Murder, Mayhem and Russia's Remaking of the West, a sequel to his previous book, Collusion both of which are available to purchase now. You can find out more about him and his books on Twitter at LukeHarding1968. That's all for today's episode. What did you think about the interview? Let me know on Twitter at Edward T. Hardy. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a five-star rating and subscribe or recommend this podcast by submitting a review online and sharing it with friends and family. Thank you to this month's supporters on Patreon, Carolyn, Colin, Ibalashnikov, Janet, Jesse, Merrily, and Nikki, who helped make this show even better. Until next time, goodbye.